Welcome to Nonprofit Investment Stewards with Bob DeMeo and Devin Francis from Fiducian Advisors. Bob and Devin are passionate about helping nonprofit organizations prosper. Whether you oversee endowment, foundation, or retirement plan investments, this podcast exists to help stewards improve performance, reduce costs, and discover strategies that enable your charitable organization to prosper and advance its mission. Now, onto the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards Podcast. I'm Bob DeMeo. Always great to be joined by co-host Devin Francis. Today, we have an extraordinary guest who I was recently introduced to by a mutual friend. Our guest expertise and topic are very timely and super important. And I'm certain that if you're a leader in a nonprofit organization, you're already investing time in the subject. Before we dive in, Devin, always good to be with you. How's your day going? Wonderful. Can't complain. I am so happy to have Cynthia Primo Martin with us today. Cynthia is known for many things, but let me just mention a few for our listeners. She was the founder of the Trustees of Color Initiative, whose mission is to ensure that nonprofit boards are inclusive of people of color. Cynthia has served as a director and trustee of many nonprofit organizations, including the University of Delaware, Delaware Symphony Association, African American Endowment Fund at DCF, and the Watterson Family Foundation. Earlier in her career, she served as Human Resources and Equal Employment Opportunity Director for a major insurance company. And Cynthia is the author of The Handbook for Nonprofit Leadership, Recruiting, Training, and Engaging Trustees of Color. Cynthia, it is so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Cynthia, we're just thrilled to have you. And you have so many initiatives and accomplishments Before we drill down on practical advice for investment committees and nonprofit leaders in general, would you share what it is that drove you to be passionate about diversity in nonprofit organizations? Sure, sure. Actually, I've had a lot of careers. My husband might say, I can't hold down a job. I don't know, but I've had lots of careers. (laughs) I started out as a remedial reading teacher after I got my master's in reading from the University of Delaware. And I wanted at that point in my life to be able to help kids uh, who are underserved. So I I think it started there. But I, I moved to Hartford, Connecticut and joined an insurance company and became an equal employment opportunity officer. So I I was uh, addressing diversity and inclusion and equity at that point. I moved back to Delaware and became a nonprofit development professional and ultimately served as a nonprofit CEO of a local retirement community. Once I retired myself, I was recruited for a lot of nonprofit boards. And I realized that the same five to six people were continually recruited for these boards. And I knew there were a lot more people of color in the community who had the skills, expertise and interests to serve. So that's when I founded TOC. And with TOC, we were able to place more than 500 trustees of color in Delaware and Pennsylvania. And I retired, I thought, from TOC again in 2019, but then decided to publish the handbook. So I've been doing this for a long time. That's great. So in the handbook, Cynthia, you present a very strong business case for diversifying boards, committees, and staff. So what can you share with our listeners on that topic uh, for folks who sit on an investment committee or folks who lead a nonprofit? Okay. Frankly, I often hear, well, why do I need to diversify? We're, we're good the way we are. And, and uh, I say you can be even better. Top leadership has to set the tone. They have to lead by example. They have to recognize the need 
and communicate their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives to everyone. You have to establish what I call the four P's, plans, policies, procedures, and practices to, to achieve your goals. You have to publicize and implement them. And you got to measure the results and make changes if little or no progress is being made. And I always tell people it's not enough just to ask persons of color to sit on your committee or board. They must be welcomed and engaged in conversation and listened to. I have an example of a, a friend who became a trustee of color and went from just a small committee to being chair of the board over a number of years, a real success story. But one board she joined, she had gone to her first meeting. She was a few minutes late because she had been in traffic and she walked into the boardroom and nobody acknowledged her. This is a person of color. Nobody acknowledged her and she, there was nowhere to sit. So she went and got herself a chair from another room, brought it into the room and put it behind the table with all of those people already seated. And the meeting continued. And then two white males came in who everybody apparently knew. And there was a hello. How are you? Let us make room for you uh, at this table. There are two chairs in the other room. Bring them in and so on and so forth. And I got to tell you, she didn't last long with that board, uh, to say the least. So it's not just sitting on the committee it's, or at the table. It's making sure people are engaged as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. <laughs> that inclusion is such an important component of it. So, Cynthia, as, as I think you know, we at Fiducian manage money for a huge variety of charitable organizations. One very common trait among them is that their hearts tend to be in the right place. So, if that is generally true, that people care and that they want to do the right thing, why is it that trustees of color are still somewhat rare? Well, it's certainly not unique to this industry. Uh, people of color are not represented nonprofit, corporately, and, and, and all kinds of entities. And I always say it's great to have it in your heart, but it's not about hearts. It's about results. And implementing diversity, and I'll say it many, many times, has got to be an intentional an organization must establish a program and, and, and make plans that signal the importance of the issue and then provides a means of execution and measure, measurement. People are often reluctant to step out of their comfort zones. We understand that. And leaders and managers are more comfortable with people who look and act like them, who live in their neighborhoods, who socialize with them, people they trust, think like them. And it's sometimes difficult to take the risks of bringing on new voices and lenses. So they're not often looking for new or different perspectives. Again, what they say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It worked in the past. Again, others feel it may be a hassle. One story I heard was that on a committee call, a Black trustee inadvertently overheard the chair complaining that, on a quote, diversity for the sake of diversity, unquote, doesn't help his board. And the board was made up of you know, traditional committees, finance, board development, governance, et cetera. And although the black trustee was an extremely accomplished attorney, the chair just couldn't seem to solicit input or figure out what input that black trustee could have on the organization. And I think we all realized that the chair just didn't want to be bothered. DEI is hard work. You have to work on it all year to achieve results. Another example for me is a, a, a nonprofit 
a board nominating committee members saying in May of, of, of one year that I need to have a board candidate of color to present for nomination in June. Well, it's not that easy. These relationships build over time. My brother, who uh, his name is Quentin Primo, and he's chairman and president of and CEO of uh, Capri Global Investment Group. And he always says that you, you really have to look at all parts of your organization, not just the, the uh, leadership, but the staff and, 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 and your supplier diversity and, and your consultants, your money managers, everyone, every part of your business. And he mentioned to me that one of his friends who he calls runs a family office decided the only way to achieve equity over a short period of time is for their money to be managed 100% by diverse managers by the end of a five-year period. And studies from Harvard Stanford show that above market returns are best achieved by small and medium-sized firms, which can be diverse. So it is, it, it's not easy. It's not easy. And I'll say that the third time, it's not easy. So I understand, but we've got to change that for the future. We, we completely agree. And, and Cynthia, the, the earlier example you mentioned about the woman of color coming in and not being well, I mean, it's so disheartening. We try to, and, and listen, we all have unconscious bias and, and, and there are all sorts of, of challenges, but we firmly believe at Fiducient that really having an inclusive, whether it be an investment committee or a management team or, or, or what have you, having an inclusive approach is not only the right thing to do, it produces better outcomes. So when we talk about outcomes or think about outcomes, what successes might a nonprofit strive for or an investment committee strive for? And what challenges will they likely face as they pursue greater diversity and inclusion? Well, as I mentioned uh, earlier, you have to get all people. Everybody's got to be on board. Those are the challenges. The main challenge is to get everybody on board and and speak the same language. And the successes are that an organization is, is really presented with a smarter set of opportunities and ultimately better problem solving. The recognition that a group with diverse backgrounds really brings more richness to the conversations and solutions to the problems is is very important. And it does mean understanding that each individual is unique and recognizing individual differences. I think over time, organizations that really have embraced these initiatives become best in class, to to call it a term, and they outperform others who have not, not stepped up. Lastly, they really do serve the mission or goals of their organization. But unless everyone is on board and they have networks, and I'll talk about that later, to really pursue diversity and inclusion, there will be little progress made. And there's also the transfer these days of baby boomer wealth, um, certainly big philanthropic gifts like Mackenzie Scott's gifts to historically black colleges and universities. So there is a, a transfer of wealth. And and, and and even the 2020 census figures show that the U.S. is more racially and ethnically diverse than ever. So, uh, again, these prospects may not be able to do Warren Buffett or, or Mackenzie Scott type gifts, but they can make smaller and medium sized gifts and, and be consistent in their giving to causes to which they are committed. So it's a process. That's that's what I'm saying. It's a process and all 
will have learned in this process. That's helpful. And you mentioned the challenge. One of the sort of core challenges is that it does require effort and it is a process. Are there other challenges that committees, nonprofit, charitable organizations heading down this path are likely to face? The issue of that I've always been faced with is people, nonprofits saying we can't find anybody and that it is very difficult to find those communities of color or, or women that they feel it's very difficult to find. And I think that's really the challenge that people will face is, is pulling out all the stops, enhancing your social networks, being on all the time. You're almost on all the time. I, I know me personally, when I was trying to find trustees of color. I mean, no matter where it was, the grocery store, whatever, I may run into someone and say, oh, are you on a board? Okay. I mean, that's probably going beyond <laughs> what people want to do. But I'm just trying to in- indicate that it's an ongoing task. And that's, that's what people have to be committed to. And those are the challenges. I think once you have a stream and network and you're listening to the people that are there and you're incorporating what they say, then all in all, you will make considerable progress and you'll have good outcomes. Yeah, you make a great point there. And it makes, it makes me think about, think of any, any manager, leader of any type of organization, they are regularly thinking about the things that are important, right? I, I was out to dinner not too long ago with the chairman, CEO and chairman of a large real estate company. And our server was just extraordinary. I mean, truly extraordinary. And he asked her, have you ever thought about being in real estate? So that's where his mind is. And and as you say that, Cynthia, so it's a war for talent, but it's a war for diverse talent. So we need to be thinking about it all the time. That's super helpful. I, I have... I have one more uh, question. It might segue us into sort of the investment side of things. But last week, I was meeting with a large new, uh, actually, children's hospital, a newer client of ours, billion-dollar-plus portfolio. And they have some initiatives with respect to the money that's being managed and using minority and women-owned and persons of color in terms of the portfolio. And one of the very astute committee members uh, really, really an established woman in finance, she just said, hey, I just want us to think about this, that we're asking these dollars to support our mission and add beds for the hospital and care and service for the sick children. And we're asking these dollars to represent women and minority and people of color. She, she just said, you know, we're asking these dollars to do a lot of things. How, how should we think about wanting to effort on this, but but still staying true to our mission. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think the you have to balance goals and objectives as well as you do for anything, for any business objective. And and they're achieving that again takes some time and some work. But in the long run, uh, as we said, the outcomes are 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 shown to be much much higher and much better and you should achieve success. So it's you can't expect that certainly you're going to negate one uh, business goal by doing something else. That just doesn't, that's not what you need to do. So you have to put it in perspective and, and, and do the, the kind of balancing it, it, it needs to. 
and it means working on several goals at the same time. Some that might be in contradiction. I, that's not exactly the word with, with another goal, but you have to find a way to manage that. I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it's a give and take. And it takes, again, the talents of people who are at the table to help you sort through that. Makes sense. We we, we can have more than one goal and objective and, and all important goals and objectives should be pursued. So Cynthia, in your writing, you use a term called board readiness. So as we think about practical points for investment committees or boards, what does that term board readiness mean? And do you have specific advice or perhaps examples for some of our listeners? Oh, definitely. Uh, certainly, uh, if the board is not ready for diversity and inclusion, then it will not happen. They've got to, as we've said, it's got to be from the leadership down. And some of the ways we get boards ready, uh, and you can get a lot of this stuff on the internet, are board readiness checklists. They actually have you check off. Does your board feel this way? Does it do this? Is it organized this way? And you use these tools to identify your board's or committee's strengths and areas uh, that need improvement. There are lots of diversity and inclusion assessment tools as well. One that I've recommended, and there are more in, in my book handbook, Project Implicit Bias Quiz. Really look at yourselves um, and your individual thoughts and biases and, 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 and try to deal with them up front before you start to, rec- to, to, to go outside to recruit some other people who are not like yourselves. And, and I said, if you had a great DNI policy statement and then you have all those plans with your goals and your steps and your timelines and your measurement tools, you will be very accessible, but it has to come from the top down. So we've talked a lot about diversity and inclusion, and we've thrown those two terms around. And in your writing, you expand upon this. So for our listeners, can you define the difference between diversity and inclusion and weigh in on considerations for nonprofit leaders? There have been so many definitions through time um, for for diversity and inclusion, Um, even back when I was an equal employment opportunity officer for, for an insurance company in Connecticut, it was about action versus just letting things be the way they are and hoping that it will change. And I think diversity and inclusion definitions, the real definitions are there. The diversity is a fact of life. I've come to believe it just is. Any group will be diverse because there are differences among people. Some are visible. Many are not visible by merely looking at the group. But when you start to talk about inclusion, it does call for behavior change. It calls for for you to do something, to invite or accept. Roll out the welcome mat, as I call it, and involve individuals who have traditionally been excluded. And it does, again, take effort and intention. And Cynthia, let's talk, you mentioned on the subject of recruiting to be thinking about it regularly. If it's important, it should be top of mind. Are there other best practices with respect to recruiting and then even ultimately working through the selection process and making that fair and appropriate? I think the best advice I was ever given by an associate was that recruiting should be, quote, by design, unquote, and not quote, by accident, unquote. 
It actually has to be planned. Again, that's where the time and effort takes place. Uh, and I think we have to be sensitive to the need for more than one, at, adding at least two to three people of color or women at any given time. So there isn't a quote unquote token in the group. One of my colleagues uses the rule of three to introduce women and people of color and other guidelines, 30%, your border committee. And then you got to look at your larger community and see the numbers and see who you serve. That should be part of your guideline. And, and reaching out for recruiting, there are all kinds of national organizations of people of color where there are also regional and local chapters. And again, you have to do the research and build the relationships and it's not like you can just go home and forget about it as you have to continue to do it. And you got to watch your own biases and don't let them impact your judgment and actions in this arena. In terms of selection, you got to make careful, thoughtful choices. And you don't want to choose anyone based on one characteristic. And the selection should fill a need for expertise and our experience that will enhance your mission and your organization. And I just want to side. People are often uh, nervous about, oh, wonder if I turn this, this candidate of color down. Uh, oh, what will happen? And I say, no, you treat everybody equitably. And, and you get back to any candidate promptly. And, and you don't have to select every candidate. But I will say that communities of color are small enough that the, if you don't get back promptly, the word will spread. And then no one will want to serve on your committee or board and they won't want to recommend others to do so. So just be professional and courteous in your turndowns. And, and believe me, it's, it has happened in organizations. And your selections should be representative of the communities you serve or want to serve. That's helpful. So, Cynthia, there's a study by the Global Economic Group on the diversity of asset managers and philanthropy. And this study looks at the top 50 U.S. charitable foundations and assesses representation of women and racial and ethnic minorities. What are some of the findings that you value most from that study? Again, that people do indeed, I really believe they want to do the right thing, that they are committed but it takes more than just saying, I really want to do this. And I think the statistics from this, this report said that of the 26 foundations included in the analysis, the share of assets managed by diversely owned firms ranged from 0% to as high, which is unusual, as 45.9% at the Knight Foundation. But the median is about 13.5%. And in talking with my brother, he said that People who manage money for, for uh, manage endowment and so on, that one less than 1% of those managers are, are Black. So it's just something that we paid attention to, but we really have to all contribute to in all of our various occupations and, and, and our boards and our, and our groups to, to, to make those numbers better in the future. It's funny, I did surf the internet and I found a website for International Endowments Network, which helps those who manage endowment funds learn about allocating to diverse asset managers. So I guess it's my feeling you can find anything on the internet. So, But I, I was impressed that this study was done and, and that it can be done, that we can achieve this kind of work, but it really does, does take a village. Absolutely. Well, you've provided 
great insights into this extremely important topic. Is there anything else, Cynthia, that you'd share with leaders of endowments or foundations on how diversity and inclusion can and and really should be used to create a more just society and, very importantly, and better results? Well, I I will point to uh, August's Black Philanthropy Month. And uh, I attended a Zoom meeting this week hosted uh, by Philanthropy Delaware, which featured a discussion with Dr. Tyrone McKinley Freeman of Columbia University. And he spoke uh, about the importance and difference of Black philanthropy versus white philanthropy, men versus women, Latino versus African-American, and so on. There are many different interesting concepts around how people give, why they give, what they're comfortable in doing. And again, as I said, he wrote, this particular person wrote um, and published a book on Madam C.J. Walker, who was the first Black woman millionaire and philanthropist in this country. And I think the bottom line was that anybody can give. You've got to find them and you've got to cultivate them and you've got to ensure they're treated well and 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 engage in the results of whatever your organization's mission is and but their spirit is in giving for black people is rooting rooted in family and it's rooted in community and our shared humanity rather than what too often becomes a benefactor to beneficiary relationship and i think that's important going forward it's not just about people giving money to causes but they have to be causes that the people who give are committed to and feel so strongly about that they're willing to go the extra mile. So Cynthia, before we let you go, we're so appreciative of your time. We'd love to learn a little bit more about you as a person. So what do you enjoy doing outside of work and your many volunteer efforts? Well, I try to exercise six or seven days a week. I'm not sure it does much good, but uh, I try anyway. I enjoy cycling. And uh, do that. We, we have a place in the Hilton Head as well as here in Delaware. And I do more of that there. I do sing and I play piano and organ. I love expanding my networks and learning about people of other cultures and races. But most fun is spending time with my grandchildren. And I have one in L.A. and one in Boston. And they are the lights of my life. Oh, that's great. Bi-coastal grandchildren. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes. Isn't that great? <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. You've provided so many great insights. How can listeners learn more about your work, perhaps access resources, maybe even contact you? Uh, they can get me uh, me personally at uh, cprimo at comcast.net. That's it. Cprimo is at comcast.net is my email address. If they want to get me, they can get my my cell phone and a text is 302-540-0196. 302-540-0196. If you want more nuggets of information and really true stories, uh, please get my handbook uh, that you mentioned earlier, Devin. Thank you very much. And it's uh, website www.cedartreebooks.com. And I'm happy to talk to anybody. I, as you can tell, I talk a lot. So, and and my book has a lot of resources in it. So if you really want some more nuggets, that's the place to get them. Cynthia, we are so appreciative and you can just feel your passion. It's wonderful and you're making a difference. Thank you so very much for joining us. And thank you so much for having me today. I enjoyed it. And thanks so much to our listeners. Cynthia shared valuable points 
I'm happy to add a resource that dovetails her advice. Devin actually recently wrote an excellent blog post titled Focus on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. It's at fiducian.com. We'll include that and we'll include all of the other information that Cynthia mentioned in our show notes. So to all you good stewards, thanks for investing time to help your nonprofits prosper. We'll connect with you soon on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Investment Stewards podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified of new episodes and visit fiduciantadvisors.com for more information. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Fiducian Advisors. Content is made available for informational and educational purposes only and does not represent a specific recommendation. Always seek the advice of qualified professionals familiar with your unique circumstances.